You're listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, recorded in the studio of Maine Magazine at 75 Market Street, Portland, Maine. Download past shows and become a podcast subscriber of Dr. Lisa Belial on iTunes. See the Dr. Lisa website or Facebook page for details. Here are some highlights from this week's program. If you show up and you have energy and ideas and you just are willing to work and collaborate with others, I feel like you can get so much done. We are unique here in the sense that our communities are big enough to enjoy, but small enough to get our arms around, and many of us really do know our neighbors, so it's, it's a special place. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors. Maine Magazine, Marcy Booth of Booth, Maine, Apothecary by Design, Premier Sports Health, a division of Black Bear Medical, Sea Bags, Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage, Ted Carter, Inspired Landscapes, and Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial. This is Dr. Lisa Belial, and you are listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, show number 118, Maine Community, airing for the first time on Sunday, December 15th. Today's guests include Eleanor Kinney, philanthropist with the Maine Community Foundation, and Meredith Jones, president and CEO with the Maine Community Foundation. Mainers are a giving group. We at the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour have been fortunate to spend time with a wide variety of giving individuals, from Mark Swan of the Preble Street Resource Center and Billy Shore and John Woods of Share Our Strength, to Julie Marchese of the Maine Cancer Foundation's Try for a Cure. Our affiliation with Maine Magazine, Maine Home Design, and the Kenny Bungport Festival has given us a seat at the table with more than 70 charitable organizations. Today, we speak with Eleanor Kinney and Meredith Jones, two individuals who understand the importance of providing support to Maine communities. We hope that you are inspired by our conversations during the season of giving. Thank you for joining us. When I think about health, I think about health not only uh, as an important part of an individual's life, but also as part of the life of a community. And so I'm really pleased today to have somebody with me who understands the importance of health and wellness um, in the community. This is Eleanor Kinney, who is on the board of the Maine Farmland Trust and is also a member of the Environmental Funders Network and is also a part of the Maine Community Foundation. So um, thanks for coming in. You really have, you have so many credentials that I could just keep talking and talking and talking and we could go in any number of directions with this, but I'm really pleased that you're here. Thank you, nice to meet you today. Eleanor, tell me why it is, I know that local food is very important to you. You're um, the co-founder of No Small Potatoes, which is an investment club that provides microloans to Maine farmers and food businesses. So why, why food? Why is food so important to you? Well, I guess I really believe that we are what we eat. And for me, food is the integrator for so many of the things that I care about. So whether you care about open space conservation, whether you care about health, whether you're concerned about hunger um, and food access, and um, just rural economic development. I mean, food for me is the lens through which I work on and view all those issues. Um, And the way as a country, we have evolved in the last decades is not a healthy path in terms of how we grow food, how we distribute it, 
um, the value that goes back to the farmers, and then the health that, that goes to the consumer. Um, so in Maine, in this low money movement, we are very focused on investing in local agriculture and rebuilding that infrastructure. Um, and Slow Money is a national movement, but Maine has probably the most active chapter in the country. Um, and I have loved the intersection with my work in Slow Money and investing, which is about investing in businesses. For me, I'm an investor. I'm a Slow Money investor, I call myself. And I invest in farms and food businesses. Uh, you mentioned No Small Potatoes. That's a microloan fund that three of us started. Um, and we provide small-scale loans, but we're also doing much larger pieces of investment and raising capital for businesses. And it's all about rebuilding a local agricultural system that creates jobs in the state, particularly in depressed rural areas, and that is going to feed Maine people. So let's back up a little bit. You're, you've been talking about slow money. I think some people are familiar with the slow food movement, right? but for people who aren't familiar with slow food or slow money, can you just give us a little bit of background on that? Sure. So the slow money movement grew out of the slow food movement, and the tagline for Slow Money National is investing as if food, farms, and fertility mattered. And the goals are around redeploying some capital into the local food system. And in Maine, um, the local chapter was started by Bonnie Rukin, and I'm on the steering committee and part of the active leadership. And we are seeking to both connect people. It's a network. It's not a nonprofit. We are uh, a network of people working together out of common interest and passion for local sustainable agriculture and fisheries. I don't want to leave fisheries out. Um, and so my the way my, the role I play in the Slow Money Network is both as an investor and as in bringing in other investors and helping to aggregate capital. Um, and Maine Community Foundation has had a real role in this for me because I started my work in the state more as a philanthropist rather than an investor. And I have a donor advised fund at Maine Community Foundation and I'm part of the Environmental Funders Network which we do um, grant making in the state focused on the environment and quality of place. But for me, it's all been coming together because I work with a group of foundations, all of whom, or many of whom, are now getting interested in local food. And so it's been very collaborative where I'm both doing grant making in the local food movement, I'm bringing in other funders um, to do grant making, and um, so helping to raise those kinds of funds for these businesses, um, but also helping to actually raise investment money. So I do patient loans, I have equity investments, I, have, I do loan guarantees. So there's a whole range of financial tools. And um, Maine Community Foundation is also looking at how to do this kind of impact investing. And that's something that I've gotten very excited about. What is your main connection? Why do you care so much about the community here in Maine? I grew up coming here just in the summer, but for me, all roads always led to Maine. I went to Yale, and my thesis was about Mount Desert Island, where I had gone in the summer. And I went to graduate school in oceanography. My oceanographic research was up on Mount Desert Island, and, and I was always trying to get back here and always hated leaving. So I was living in Rhode Island, and I had started a family there. 
and was doing conservation work. And I saved the last old growth forest in Rhode Island. And I thought, I really want to do this work in Maine. I, I, for me, it's always been my sole place. And it's a place that you can have tremendous impact. I mean, we are a large state with incredible natural resources and a small population. And if you show up and you have energy and ideas and you just are willing to work and collaborate with others, I feel like you can get so much done. Well, talking with you about this, about the ability to have an impact, really reminds me of the work that your 12-year-old son is doing with Save the Nautilus. You told me that he's actually raised $20,000. So as a 12-year-old, and I guess he started this when he was 10, yep. somehow he already had the idea that he could do something that would make a difference. Well, I feel like, you know, if you live your values, your kids are going to pick that up. And my son has been raised in a in a household where we love animals. I have a diversified organic farm. He's always had an interest in science and been exposed to ideas around conservation. And so his best friend approached him when he read about the plight of the chambered nautilus, which is being heavily overfished in was covered in the New York Times, and the boys launched this organization called Save the Nautilus, and they designed a website and started getting recognized in the media, and, you know, Ridgely's an artist, my son, so he designed this really cool logo with the Nautilus, and we've been selling it on t-shirts and note cards and and just getting, I mean, we've had hundreds of letters from kids all over the country. They had an article from Time for Kids that generate a lot of interest. And and so there are classrooms of kids that are having bake sales and doing dog walks all to raise money. And then they send us checks. And all the money that we raise goes to the University of Washington, which is where the lead researcher is. So the $20,000 that they've now raised has gone for underwater cameras, largely, to help um, fund documenting the Nautilus population. So I just love seeing kids caring about you know, things that are bigger than themselves, caring about wildlife and conservation, and then actually doing something about it. So the chambered nautilus, for people who aren't um, into the oceans. It's that beautiful spiral shell that you see. And the thing that's so amazing about the nautilus is it's, it's a 500 million year old animal, you know, way before the dinosaurs, and has, you know, survived all those mass extinctions that we've heard about. And now, you know, now that we've brought it into the 21st century, it's seriously threatened because of humans fishing it for its shell. Um, And so a lot of this effort is not just about trying to fund the research, but increase awareness. And that's what's been amazing because they've been, um, you know, they've been on TV and in the news and, and done radio podcasts of their own and just trying to spread the word about not buying the jewelry you know, supporting the conservation, contacting eBay and other places where you can buy Nautilus jewelry. And they're eventually hoping to get it listed so that the trade is restricted. You've had your, um, your fingers in a lot of different pies. You've been involved in things that, um, well, you've been involved in the Maine Farmland Trust. You've done work with No Small Potatoes, Maine Community Foundation. Um, what keeps you continuing to seek? What keeps you continually interested in kind of understanding the best ways of making an impact on the community? I think for me, a lot of my focus is around alignment. So my model is, is living something and then, you know, how I live my life and then also how I deploy my resources in ways that benefit community. 
So part of my love for agriculture has led me to convert my property into a farm. You know, I've, I'm all, all the energy is generated with, through solar power. Um, and then I help young, launch young farmers and support new businesses. So that's, I care about economic development, which is a huge issue in Maine. And I've been an environmentalist since college, and you end up fighting a lot of battles and trying to stop things. And I took on a battle in my community to um, stop Super Walmart from being built in Damariscotta. Two of us led that campaign, and we were successful. And I thought to myself, well, if that's the no, you know, if we don't want that kind of strip development in Damariscotta, Maine, what is the yes? You know, for Damariscotta, for Aroostook County, for all, you know, Washington County, for all these parts of the state. And for me, a lot of the yes has been supporting the kinds of businesses that are creating healthy products that are good for people and good for the earth and build their communities. So, you know, I try to live that in my own life by having a farm and raising my children on the farm. And then I try to live that through how I invest my resources. So for me, I'd much rather I'm in a process of consciously pulling money out of the stock market and taking it off Wall Street and investing it into main businesses and main communities. Here on the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, we've long recognized the link between health and wealth. Here to speak more on the topic is Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial. I look forward to the mail this time of year. The holiday cards, birthday cards, and notes from family and friends give me pause to appreciate the abundance of love that I have in my life. And as is always the case, mixed in with the cards are appeals from charitable organizations in Maine asking me to donate what I can to help them help our community. And while I give as much as I can, there is a limit to how far I can stretch my resources. Yet, as I move forward in my own financial evolution, I do look forward to the time when there is greater abundance than can be shared with my community right now. Think about it. How much stronger would our main community be if we all shared the same goal? To get to a healthier financial place personally so that we could all give just a little bit more. To learn more about Shepherd Financial, like us on Facebook or go to www. ShepherdFinancialMaine.com. Securities offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA SIPC. Investment advice offered through Flagship Harbor Advisors, a registered investment advisor. Flagship Harbor Advisors and Shepherd Financial are separate entities from LPL Financial. There was a time when the apothecary was a place where you could get safe, reliable medicines, carefully prepared by experienced professionals coupled with care and attention, focused on you and your unique health concerns. Apothecary by Design is built around the forgotten notion that you don't just need your prescriptions filled, you need attention, advice, and individual care. Visit their website, apothecarybydesign.com, or drop by the store at 84 Marginal Way in Portland and experience pharmacy care the way it was meant to be. I like that idea of um, what is the yes as opposed to the no. I think this is something that um, we bump up against a lot is this the sense that there are so many things that are kind of falling apart in the environment. And sometimes I think that's very discouraging for people who really want to do 
good things, helpful things, live in a mindful way on the planet. And yet it just feels like everything, you know, it's so hard to grasp. Um, but when you say what is the yes, it gives you something positive to move toward rather than something negative to move away from. And people relate to that. I mean, it is amazing to me. I, I speak in Maine and I, I speak out of state. And people are really drawn to, and it's not political. You know, that's one thing I love about food. Um, it's everybody can relate to that experience of eating good food. People are really interested in where their food is grown now. I mean, it's definitely part of a whole national consciousness. And in Maine, where we just still have those rural landscapes, we still have working farms. Um, and yes, they are at risk, and that's why I'm on the board of Maine Farmland Trust, because we are trying to secure um, farmland easements so that the land that is in farming stays in farming. Um, and that's so important, because without, without that, I mean, Maine has a real advantage right now in terms of the rest of the New England. We are, we are the land base for New England in terms of what we still have available for agriculture. Um, but it's going to take a conscious effort to make sure that we steward that. And that's what the conservation piece is about. And that's what's also making sure that, that farms and food businesses are economically viable. And that's the investment piece. We need to invest in those businesses because as long as they're viable and they can make a living, then that land will stay open. This reminds me of a conversation I had with um, Cecily Pingree about mm -hmm. the, the work that she did, the movie that she created called Betting the Farm. Yep. And it really was, it was about Maine's organic um, milk farmers. It's moo milk. And it, in, I, I left her film and our conversation really revolved around the idea that we're, we're so in the middle of this that we don't have a happy ending yet. <laughs> Which is true with so many of our businesses. So I'm one of the early investors in Moo Milk. Cecily's awesome. She also serves on the board of Maine Farmland Trust with me. And Moo Milk has been an absolute roller coaster ride. And you know, these are startups. These are startups in a really tough, commodity-driven, low-margin industry. You know, and that's true of Moo Milk, and that's true of the, I'm in, invested in a grist mill in Skowhegan, Somerset Grist Mill. I'm invested in a veggie processing facility in the county called Northern Girl. And just, I'm invested in slaughterhouses and distribution companies. And, you know, it's tough. And it's such a, it's not like you get up and going and you're ne necessarily going to be successful. We don't know. We're going to, some of these businesses are probably going to fail. And that's a risk as an investor. Um, but for me, it's about all working together to ensure that they're as successful as they can be. So we focus not just on investment, but providing technical assistance. I mean, not all farmers know how to write a business plan. You know, that's, that's so it's helping bring together the different kinds of resources that can help nurture these companies while recognizing that what they're doing has value for all of us. Um, and so we try to share the risk. More and more, it seems, people who invest in something like um, an organic farm or a grist mill are looking for a return on investment that's bigger than just money. For you, what does that look like? For me, it looks like... Um, you know, we call it whatever, triple bottom line, right? We're investing, when I invest in the grist mill in Skowhegan, um, I'm investing in a business that's employing people, that's buying grain from Aroostook County, and so therefore of benefit to grain growers. 
I'm looking at a business that's involved in the whole food hub in Skowhegan that has a year-round farmer's market that that people can bring their EBT cards and use them to access fresh food so there's a and be subsidized in that way there's there's a match program um, and so again the focus is about healthy food for everybody regardless of income level that's really important um, and there are businesses growing in Skowhegan that are pasta businesses and and someone who makes wood-fired ovens for bread baking there's a whole artisan bread movement and uh, and Skowhegan was the the breadbasket for the U.S. for the um, New England in the Civil War. I mean, that's where the Civil War soldiers were. At, that's where the wheat came from that that made the bread that they ate. So it has this history, um, and so we're also connecting back to that past, but also bringing it into the future in a way that's that's really going to help grow those communities that have. I mean, Skowhegan's been pretty down and out. When I asked you to come on the show, you noticed that one of our um, one of the guests we were taping the same day that you were taping was um, Glenn Cummings, who is with the Goodwill Hinckley School, Maine Academy of Natural Sciences, and he discusses in the interview that aired in November the work that is being done with the food hub in the Skowhegan, and he mentioned your name, actually. He talked about the grist um, mill and the wheat in Maine. And it's interesting to me that there are sort of links everywhere, that there's a link to the person who is involved in education, there's a link to the farmer, there's a link. So how is that? Um, how does that feel to be in a state where there's just so many connections? Well, that's kind of going back to what I was saying earlier about Maine being in some ways a very small state where then you can have really big impacts. And when you're working on issues, it does, it cuts across many different areas. And we're, we're a tight-knit community. We get to know each other. I mean, I know, you know, in the food movement, there's so many different people that have a relationship to it one way or another, whether it's through education and raising the next generation of kids who are interested in, in agriculture, um, or it's around the investment side, or it's around the conservation side, um, people, uh, the great work that Good Shepherd Food Bank is trying to do. So Good Shepherd Food Bank is now putting significant money into you know paying farmers to grow local food for them. So again, not just getting all the cans of commodity food, but having healthy, fresh food to feed um, low-income people. And so it's just, we do, we build this community of getting to know each other. And that's what the slow money meetings that we have, there are people there from banks and from nonprofits. And there's the, the farmers that came down from a rustic. And, and there are a lot of people in the room from diverse background. But what brings them together is caring about Maine and caring about a food system that feeds us all. Usually when I have people on the show, I ask them um, to tell us how they, how listeners can find out more about what they're doing, but I don't think there's one specific website that people are going to be able to go to to find out about all the different things you're doing. Um, so I would encourage people to find out more about the Maine Farmland Trust, the Maine Community Foundation, No Small Potatoes, Slow Money Maine, um, the Environmental Funders Network. Really spend some time looking at these websites and learning more about the opportunities that, that you are currently um, making available to the people in the community um, and the state of Maine. I really appreciate your taking the time to come in and talk to us about the work that you're doing, um, Eleanor. I think that this is 
sometimes, as we've said, we can get caught up in what we can't do, but if we can find that yes that we can work towards, I think it makes us all healthier as individuals and healthier as a community. So I appreciate you coming in. Oh, thank you. And and there's a role for everybody. That's what I tell people. I mean, I know I get focused sometimes on the investment side, but for me, you know, we can eat local, we can buy local, you know, we, we are... We have a big role to play as consumers as well. You know, find your farmer's market, you know, get to know your farmers and, and the people that are catching your fish and and develop those relationships that then reconnect us um, to each other and to our, our, our world and our resource base. I think you've said it well. I hope people who are listening go out and do just that. Well, thanks for having me. As a physician and small business owner, I rely on Marcy Booth from Booth, Maine to help me with my own business and to help me live my own life fully. Here are a few thoughts from Marcy. I feel very fortunate to be a business owner in Maine. Unlike any other place I can think of, Maine is truly a community of connected people and businesses who really want to see each other succeed. And if my company can play even the smallest part in creating success for my clients, I am very grateful. That's what gets us excited at Booth, helping people see their vision become a reality. I'm Marcy Booth. Let's talk about the changes you need. BoothMaine.com This segment of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour is brought to you by the following generous sponsors. Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage in Yarmouth, Maine. Honesty and integrity can take you home. With Remax Heritage, it's your move. Learn more at rheritage.com. Using recycled sails collected from sailors and sailing communities around the world, Seabags designs and manufactures bags, totes, and accessories in Maine on Portland's working waterfront. From the best-selling classic Navy Anchor Tote to fresh new designs, Seabags offers retired sails another life by turning them into handmade, one-of-a-kind, nautical-inspired pieces. Please visit the Seabags store in Portland or Freeport, or go to www.seabags.com to browse their unique collection. Health and wellness are an important part of our community, and there's no one that can speak better about the idea of community, or at least as it relates to the work she does with the Maine Community Foundation, than Meredith Jones, who is the president and CEO of the Maine Community Foundation right here in Maine. So we're very privileged to have her with us today. I'm delighted to be here, Lisa. Thanks for the invitation. Well, thank you. You have so many things that you've done in your life you actually have an honorary doctorate of letters that you got from the University of Maine in 2013. Your family's been here for more than 200 years in Washington County. Um, what was it about Maine that caused you to not only um, be brought up here, but to kind of come back here and, and do the work that you do? Well, here's the story behind the story, because uh, I actually was in Washington, D.C., speaking to a group of Mainers who now live in D.C., and indeed, I did comment to the group about how the Jones family roots go back in Washington County for about 200 years. And after I spoke, an individual from Callis, Maine, uh, where my dad was born, came up to me and said, well, what street did you grow up on? 
the truth of the matter is I uh, was raised outside of Pittsburgh and uh, certainly summered in Maine. And it is true that my father was born in Maine, as was his father and his father and his father. However, I was not born in Maine, raised children in Winthrop. So I've been here for about 33 years. But um, more a more direct response to your question about why here, why anywhere, I think my story is a good one in that I did choose to live here, chose to raise children here. My husband at the time and I came to Maine from New Hampshire and uh, have always felt, perhaps because of my youth spending time on the banks of the St. Croix River, that this really is home. There's so much that is appealing about it. And in the work that I do today, talking to individuals who might live here part-time, almost to a person, what they will talk about is the sense of community that exists here that has been lost or never had been achieved in the part of the United States where they live right now. We are unique here in the sense that our communities are big enough to enjoy, but small enough to get our arms around. And many of us really do know our neighbors. So it's, it's a special place. Describe to the people who are listening what the Maine Community Foundation is, what what it is that you're actually doing. Mm-hmm. We are celebrating our 30th anniversary. We were founded, obviously, 30 years ago by an individual who spent most of his uh, year in New York, had a relationship with our counterpart in New York, and felt that Maine needed a community foundation. So what is a community foundation? Just like the name says, we are about community. We are a grant-making institution, so we are making grants, and we're all about Maine. And uh, we have about $330 million in assets. And interestingly enough, it started off 30 years ago with a $10 gift with this, from this man uh, his, whose name was Bob Blum. Um, and that $10 has grown to $330 million. And the reason it has is because there are a number of people in Maine who want to be philanthropic, who may not have what they would consider to be sufficient dollars to create a private foundation, and so they they will use a community foundation for their philanthropy. And so many of the assets that we have under management were given to us by individuals who have established a fund, uh, a named fund, that money is accounted for separately. And what those donors do is make grants from that fund. So they have the joy of being a philanthropist, and we do all of the heavy lifting. And that's one of the pieces of work that we do. But we also do a variety of other things. We have it's 18 different competitive grant programs where nonprofits are applying to us for grant support. And on an annual basis, we are giving away about $18 million a year. So uh, we do that, plus we also are involved in other uh, activities that really do come under the umbrella of building Maine community. And we can talk a little bit, if you want, about uh, a survey that we were part of a number of years ago that really did assess the level of civic engagement and the level of what... uh, 
Bob Putnam in his book Bowling Alone calls uh, social capital, and it relates very directly, I think, to a community's health uh, and well-being. Well, let's let's talk about that. What is social capital? It's the uh, Bob Bob Putnam uses. Uh, polysyllabic words to describe it, but it's it, it's actually the reciprocity that occurs in a community. It is an individual's uh, connection to that community, whether that individual is connected by knowing his or her neighbor, connected because they're doing volunteer work, and or connected in some other way. And uh, some we learned a lot. Uh, we actually did a survey of Lewiston Auburn. This was at the turn of the decade. I think it was in the year two thousand. So it's been a number of years, and it was prior to the arrival or the influx of the wonderful diversity that Lewiston Auburn now have and are very proud of. What we were trying to determine is. You know, why, what makes Lewiston Auburn tick? And uh, we were uh, generalizing from Lewiston Auburn to the larger Maine community about what, what makes Maine communities tick. And here's what we discovered, that we are a very trusting state, that we are, by and large, connected to our neighbors. It doesn't mean that we don't have a long way to go. Uh, we do very well in educating people at the high school level. I think our graduation rates are about 85%. We do far less well in post-secondary educational attainment. And I, the reason I mention that is because that there there is a strong connection or correlation between educational attainment level, citizen involvement, uh, economic status, health status, and crime. So at the Community Foundation, once we had all of this data, we as an organization decided that one way to support community vitality is really focusing on higher educational attainment. And for the last several years, that is where we have been focused. So there are a lot of things that are all tied together. Um, and this survey data really did help us understand that, you know, in so many areas, Maine does really, really well in terms of community vibrancy. But we've got a long way to go. How do you um, build on what Maine does well while simultaneously trying to boost the long way to go? Because it can be kind of, people don't like to be criticized. So there is this sense that maybe if, if you were to come in and say, well, we don't think you do this as well, mm-hmm. that perhaps you might get some resistance. Yeah, and I don't know that we would ever walk into a community and say, maybe you don't do this so well. Our whole philosophy is really uh, thinking about what's going well in a community and how do we make it better, as opposed to, oh my gosh, look at the problems this community is having and how can we fix them? I think at the end of the day, the Community Foundation is not in a position to fix any community. What we are in a position to do is help a community identify those elements that they want to work on and providing them with the support, whether it's grant-making support or just uh, standing behind the good name and reputation of the Community Foundation to support those local people to do what they really, really want to do. Is their vision necessarily what my vision might be? Maybe not. Maybe it is. But 
uh, I think communities know best what their future can be. And it does, I mean, I, as, I'm, as I'm talking, I'm thinking about the whole concept of leadership and where leadership fits in. I think one of the challenges Maine faces is the fact that we don't believe in ourselves as much as we should. We have tremendous potential as a state. The individuals in this state are every bit as capable and smart as people outside this state. But when you look at the economic data, there's a disconnect. And I think um, Angus King probably was the best person we have had in recent times in trying to provide the encouragement and support to help people believe in themselves. Um, you know, that's, that's really a fundamental part of leadership. So the extent to which the Community Foundation can help communities and individuals in those communities believe in themselves, I think we will have done an incredible job in supporting the long-term success of communities in Maine. What are some ways in which you help people believe in themselves? What are some very concrete yeah. things that you're doing as part of the Maine Community right. Foundation? Um, we make about 3,000 grants in the course of a year. Uh, and some of those grants are going to individuals as in the form of scholarship support. Um, one of our scholarships is uh, available to support non-traditional students. And so after a period of grant making with these scholarships, we invited these non-traditional students to come in and talk to us about the difference the scholarship has made, the challenges and struggles they're facing as non-traditional students. And talk about inspiration. I mean, the, the stories around the table when we brought these students about the student where our financial support provided transportation so that this individual could get to college get to the campus to take classes. But one of the stories I will remember forever was an individual who was in her 40s when she went back to school. She had uh, finished high school and had gone into the workforce, but her children were now reaching an age where they were in high school, and she had always wanted to be an engineer, always wanted to be an engineer, but life got in the way, and that was not going to be a possibility for her until this scholarship support. So the story she told was taking classes as a non-traditional 40-something-year-old student in engineering, watching her children watch her. But the coolest thing was having her dad watch her. And her dad ended up going back to school because she was such an inspiration. I mean, talk about believing in yourself and what our role was, was saying, we believe in you. Here's some financial support to help you realize what it is you want to do in the future. And voila, she did it. She graduated. And her, as I said, her dad has gone back to school. And I am sure her two boys will be going to college. Do you think that part of the reason it's important for the Community Foundation to support people financially um, is that the donors themselves, in many cases, have had to work very hard in their lives mm -hmm. to actually create the mm -hmm. abundance, the wealth mm -hmm. that they're able to give to the Community Foundation? Mm -hmm. Do you think that there's this sense of sort of paying it forward? I uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yes. And it always uh, has struck me that 
the pro- I'm generalizing here, but the profile of the individuals who have established funds at the Community Foundation are individuals who obviously have made money or inherited wealth. There is seems to be a relationship between uh, the source of that wealth and the level of anonymity that donors require. Some of our quietest, most anonymous individuals are those with the greatest capacity. They want no attribution. They don't want anybody to know who they are, but they do definitely want to pay it forward. And um, you might ask, well, if they're part-time residents, why are they... Why are they doing their philanthropy in Maine? And the answer I get will be, we live in Maine communities in the summer. Our ability to continue to live here depends on community vitality. So we want to give back to that community where we think the need is greatest and the opportunity is greatest. And they will say, Maine is such a wonderful place to give because a little goes such a long way. In fact, we have one, a, a donor couple that lives most of the year or, or most of the month in Los Altos Hills, California. Uh, they grew up in the Philadelphia area. They have a residence in Maine. And their philanthropy started, as they would say, in California and in Philadelphia and a little bit in Maine. And having worked here in Maine now for about 13 years, all of their philanthropy is in Maine because they just love it. They love, they work with school teachers, K-12 elementary public school teachers, and their grants are small and their grants are designed to support just creative projects that teachers want to do with their kids that they have no money to do. And... um, so it's a it's a great example of of a donor couple that said, "Wait a minute. You know, Maine has tremendous need. Maine has tremendous opportunity. Our little grants go a long way. We want to focus our grant making in Maine." The goal of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour is to help make connections between the health of the individual and the health of the community. The goal of Ted Carter Inspired Landscapes is to deepen our appreciation for the natural world. Here to speak with us today is Ted Carter. In 2009, I had just come out of moving through the Great Recession, I guess you might say. Most of us were sort of getting our bearings after the the debacle on Wall Street and uh, the economic collapse. And I remember I started that spring, uh, my business Uh, went down by 40% in one year, and so I was scrambling, and I put this exhibit together for the Rockport show at Maine Home Design Magazine, and I I pretty much did it solo by myself, and I found it very healing, and it was all working with the sacred feminine, and it was very introspective in, in, in nature. And one of the things I realized when I work with the elemental forces is that metal does not bend. It's stiff. It's unyielding. It snaps. It cracks. Wood uh, tends to be more supple. It bends. It moves. It expands and contracts. Even the wood on your house can expands in the in in the wet season and contracts during the dry cold season. So these are things to remember in life that. Try to be supple. Try to move with the energy. Try to move with the flow. Don't become too rigid. Rigidity is good, but
but it needs to be balanced with the supple flow of the wood energy. I'm Ted Carter, and if you'd like to contact me, I can be reached at tedcarterdesign.com. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast understands the importance of the health of the body, mind, and spirit. Here to talk about the health of the body is Jim Graderix of Premier Sports Health, a division of Black Bear Medical. Let's talk about the can-do attitude for a moment. Stories about triumph. For some, it's about getting out of bed every morning. For others, it's about taking on the challenges of daily living with a disability or other medical condition. What we all take for granted each day can be someone else's entire world. At Black Bear Medical, we empower people to be independent and take on their daily challenges. Our home medical equipment, medical supplies, and other products not only help get people out of bed, but help them lead productive and active lives. Whether your goal is to get from one end of the house to the other with ease, or to climb Mount Katahdin, we have the customers of all abilities that do extraordinary things because of the things we provide them every day. Visit us at blackbearmedical.com, like us on Facebook, and see how we can change your life or the life of someone you care about. Black Bear Medical, it's your life, define it your way. In addition to the grant making that you do, you also provide some um, help with modeling and setting up programs in some mm. ways. Is that mm-hmm. right? Yep. Um, yeah, we do. I mean, not. Uh, there are community foundations in every state in the United States, and not all of us look alike. And more, but but more and more community foundations acknowledge that they have an important role in the whole area of community leadership in in tackling issues that might be long term that other groups really are not focusing on. And one of them that we are working on here in Maine is a program that focuses on what I call older adults. Other people call them baby boomers, but Maine is a graying state, very much like other states in New England. I think we are per capita one of the oldest, if not the oldest, state in the nation. And heretofore, historically, we have thought about older adults as um, in a needs-based way. They're frail, the frail elderly. They need, they need medical support. They need social service support. Well, we were approached by a global funder who said, you know, I, I think we need to turn this issue up, upside down because there is a growing group of individuals, and many of them are retiring here, who are very healthy. They are older, but they're healthy. They're well-educated. They might not need a day job because they're retired, but they want to give back, and they probably don't want to stuff envelopes. They want to give back in a meaningful way. So we, in partnership with the University of Maine Center on Aging, created a program called the Encore Leadership Corps. And what we did was recruit baby boomers to learn about how to run a meeting, a group facilitation, how to 
organize locally. And what we have trained them to do is to go back into their communities and create community-based projects under this umbrella called smart growth. So they're creating hiking trails. They're uh, supporting recycling efforts. They are uh, building playgrounds. They are looking at other local economic development issues. So they're doing things that, it's not that stuffing envelopes isn't important, but Shame on us if we don't capitalize on these very smart, well-educated people and put them to work because Maine needs them. Maine, I mean, if you read Charlie Colgan, uh, uh, you know that the uh, in-migration of young people is not happening at a rapid enough pace that we need to sustain this economy. So we have to deploy the people we have here. Speaking of young people, you raised your children, you said, mm-hmm. in Winthrop. What kind of an impact has the work that you've been doing over the course of your life had on your children and what they have chosen to do with their own lives? Mm. Well, um, you know, I write a blog, and I like to say that 12 people read it, and most of those 12 people are related to me. But once a year, the blog that seems to attract most attention is one about the family philanthropy game. And what I have done with my family is impose upon them uh, the whole notion that we who are um, grateful for what we have need to give back. And we've made it into the form of a game where it includes the two grandkids who are now seven and ten. It includes my two children who are raised in Winthrop, their spouses, and uh, and my spouse. And we gathered at uh in the season of giving at Christmas time, and we sit down and I give them each $50 and say, okay, your job is to get have the most impact with this $50 by giving it away. Tell me what you have done. I will post what you've done on the website and we'll let the blog readers vote on what the best idea is. And while the first year it was okay, uh, the second year was better. The third year, they are they got really competitive. And earlier this summer, my grandson started talking to me about where he's going to give his money and how he's going to win this game. He is just going to win this game because he's going to make the most impact with the $50. So uh, in spite of what I said earlier about never imposing one's values or, or, or doing two uh, communities... I actually did to my family, and they have come along. They've been very gracious, and it's now, I think, part of the culture. And it is the best blog I write every year. So what were some of their choices? Well, uh, since some of them live in Massachusetts, uh, some of the choices were um, actually, you know, one of the best gifts was my uh, daughter-in-law, Isabel. Isabel is from Rio. And... Uh, what she decided to do with her $50 was buy a pair of Tom's shoes. She loves shoes. And what she was doing with Tom's shoes is that she was going to give her pair to Goodwill. And Tom's shoes, if you know them at all, for every pair of shoes you buy, Tom's is giving a pair of shoes to uh, somebody in a developing country who might not otherwise have shoes. So she said, 50 bucks, I'm, I'm giving great shoes to somebody who shops Goodwill and somebody in a developing country. So she was pretty pumped about that. That was a good gift. Um, the the one that uh, my grandson did to um, 
the Jimmy Fund, I think most most blog readers that voted for that, it wasn't because it was the Jimmy Fund. It was to try to get support for this now very competitive, at the time, seven-year-old who wanted to prove that he, too, could be part of this game. So they have been interesting gifts. $50 isn't a lot, but it's more the idea behind it that has spawned a lot of creativity. Well, $50 isn't a lot, but it, but it is a lot. Mm-hmm. I mean, it can really, if you're someone who say you're listening to this show and you have $50 to give out of your Christmas budget, you can do something with it. You can do a lot. You can you can do a lot. And it can leverage uh, a whole host of other cascading things that are all very, very positive. In fact, you know, this um, earlier this summer, I was in Oxford County at an event. And this woman I do not know came up to me and said, I've heard I need to read your blog about the family giving challenge because I want to do something with my grandchildren. And it has, to your point about the $50, the $50, the the actual project has spawned other people who have others that they want to encourage to give. Uh, It has inspired others to create their own little grant making program with family members. So you're right. And it's also um, important to note that the Community Foundation does have a way of paying attention to the impact that the grants are making. Mm -hmm. I think in the past, maybe when there was more money to be given out, people weren't quite as concerned with um, the outcomes. Mm -hmm. And it seems as though this has become more more important, that if you're going to invest dollars in something, you'd like to see that there is something positive happens with those dollars. Yeah, and I think, to, to that point, Lisa, I think more and more donors, as uh, as the younger generation becomes philanthropic, these are individuals in their 30s and 40s about, uh, for whom outcomes and data are increasingly important. How do I know that this grant or these grants are going to make a difference? Uh, show, show me the data. So increasingly, we are employing tools and consulting support to try to better answer that question. It's, you know, at one level, you can look at a smiling face or a well-fed kid and say that grant made a difference. But more fundamentally, sh- show us the numbers, show us the data, show us in a quantitative way that this grant will make a difference. Mm-hmm. What are some suggestions you could offer to people who are um, now in the holiday season and thinking about uh, how they might want to share their abundance Mm. with other people? Well, let's start with where you started, which was $50 can make a difference. It, it, It doesn't, the amount doesn't matter. Uh, There are so many groups for whom $50 means a great deal. And for individuals who are eager to give back, there are so many ways of doing it. Part of it is with money. Part of it is with time. There are so many groups out there desperate for volunteers uh, to help at the staff level, volunteers at the board level to help these nonprofits build the capacity and the scale they need to continue doing their good work. There are, uh, if it's less clear about what specific organization I want to give to, one way to think about it is, what are my passions? What do I care about most? Is it food security? Is it economic development? And then sort of sorting through, well, what are the groups locally that I know are doing that kind of work? What are the groups statewide that are doing that kind of work? They certainly can always call the main Community Foundation uh, for support in helping identify groups in their local
local communities that they might want to think about based on what their passions are. But start with a passion. Start with what means most, what do you care about most, and let your heart lead you along with your head. So you said that people could call the Maine Community Foundation. How do people find the number for the Maine Community Foundation or other information? Um, Well, you can go to our website, but let me start with a number. It's toll-free, 877-700-6800. It is a toll-free number that puts you in touch with somebody who actually answers the phone, and we will direct you to the specific staff person because we are organized in a way that we have staff who pay attention to the different parts of the state. We do have a very active presence on our website, which is maincf.org. Maine, like the state of Maine, C is in Charles, F is as in Frank.org. Uh, go to my blog and respond. It comes out every other week, and I'm talking about things that I think about as they relate to both community, community health, the Maine economy, leadership, higher education. And I would love to have people comment on that and just offer their own ideas. Um, We have a Facebook presence also. I don't think we're doing Twitter, though. So sorry about that. Sometime in the future, perhaps. Yes. We've been speaking with Meredith Jones, who is the president and CEO of the Maine Community Foundation. Um, We're very pleased to know that you're out there in the world sort of um, throwing pebbles in the pond and seeing where the ripples are all going and helping other people pay it forward. So thank you for doing that and for spending time with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Great to be here. You have been listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, show number 118, Maine Community. Our guests have included Eleanor Kinney and Meredith Jones. For more information on our guests and extended interviews, visit doctorlisa.org. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is downloadable for free on iTunes. For a preview of each week's show, sign up for our e-newsletter and like our Dr. Lisa Facebook page. Follow me on Twitter and Pinterest and read my take on health and well-being on the Bountiful blog. We love to hear from you, so please let us know what you think of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour. We welcome your suggestions for future shows. Also, let our sponsors know that you have heard about them here. We are privileged that they enable us to bring the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour to you each week. This is Dr. Lisa Belial. I hope that you have enjoyed our main community show. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of your day. May you have a bountiful life. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors. Maine Magazine, Marcy Booth of Booth, Maine, Apothecary by Design, Premier Sports Health, a division of Black Bear Medical, Dr. John Herzog of Orthopedic Specialists, Seabags, Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage, Ted Carter, Inspired Landscapes, and Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour is recorded in the studio of Maine Magazine at 75 Market Street, Portland, Maine. Our executive producers are Kevin Thomas and Dr. Lisa Belial. Audio production and original music by John C. McCain. Our assistant producer is Leanne Wiemet. Our online producer is Katie Kelleher. Become a subscriber of Dr. Lisa Belial on iTunes. See the Dr. Lisa website or Facebook page for details. Summaries of all our past shows can be found at doctorlisa.org.